Take out your Bibles if you would. Open them up to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Lord willing, we will finish our study of this amazing book. Seven months. Does it seem like that long to you? <laughs> Seven months ago, we started this journey through the book of Hebrews, and man, I've been so blessed. And started last week, last chapter, chapter 13, talked at the time about how the author now starts getting really practical, really zeroing in on how we apply this specifically, individually, to our lives. Talked a lot about doctrine and a lot of things throughout the first 12 chapters, but here we're going to see application. Well, as we get halfway through the chapter, starting in verse 10, it's almost like he, he puts something in that doesn't fit with the rest of the flow, and we would just look at it if we took this chapter by itself, out, out by itself. But when we take it in context with what he's written through the first 12 chapters and through this whole letter, it flows beautifully. It's like, okay, here's some things that we got to do. And then in the middle, he says, okay, we got to remind ourselves why we're doing this, what, in what power we do this, and then continues. We see this in verse 10. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now, again, we look at this in our day and age and reading through this, like a lot of the things that we've covered through this book, it, we think, well, what, what is he talking about? How does that apply to us? Well, we need to remember, again, the context with which this is written. Who is he writing to? He's writing to Jewish people, many of which, most of which we understand, are followers now of Jesus Christ. They've, walked, they've gone away from the religious side of it to follow Jesus, leaving the sacrificial system behind. Some are still wrestling with that whole thing. Many are feeling drawn back into it because of family, friends, the religious system pointing to them and saying, how can you betray your family? How can you betray your religion? How can you go away to this new thing that doesn't have an altar, it doesn't have a high priest, it doesn't have a sacrificial system? How, how can you do this? And he is encouraging them. And if we place this alongside, if you'd flip back just a couple of pages, chapter 10, if we put this section that we just read Right alongside the end or the middle of chapter 10, we see an, a great parallel. Again, to me, what he's doing here in chapter 13 is just a quick reminder because we're going through some really, really heavy stuff. This last time we talked about, if you remember last week, we talked about brotherly love, how we're to love one another, how we're to honor one another, how we're to honor marriage and, and those types of things. Well, he goes back to why we're doing this and he points to verse, uh, verse 11, chapter 10. See how these line up together. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, being Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The sacrifices being offered in the temple, they can't take away your sin, but Jesus, once for all, his one sacrifice did it all. 
Verse, verse 14, he says the same thing. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, one time, perfecting us all. Skipping down verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So that points us to verse 10 in our text now where he says, for we have an altar for which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You can't have both. You can't look to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment and the once-for-all payment for sin and continually offer a sacrifice for sin. You can't have both. Hebrews 10 again, finishing up that part, verse 21, it says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that being Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere faith and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We take this in context of what he is talking about and pointing to, speaking to them. But what about us? What about us? How does this play in with us in parallel to them? Well, let's look at our text again now in chapter 13. Verse 12, talking about Jesus now fulfilling this. He said, they said, it, that, again, they talked about this, that you don't have an altar anymore. Well, he, he refutes that. He says, we do have an altar. They have an altar, the bronze altar. We have an altar made of wood. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross. That is the place of sacrifice. The altar and the tabernacle, that's the place of the sacrifice of the burnt offerings. But the place of sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the cross. And we go to that. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, because of this, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside of the gate. Speaking of our sanctification, our purification. What Jesus did outside of the temple, outside of the gate, suffering and dying in our place. The ultimate sacrifice. Verse 13 so let us go outside to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. So we have our sanctification, our purification in him, but here it's speaking of our separation from that old system, separation from the world, and our identification with him as Lord. Verse 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So we have, we have our sanctification, our purification. Because of that, we have separation and identification. But here, speaking of our relocation and our glorification, we will one day be standing with him in paradise. We will be in heaven with him forever. And that's where our focus needs to be, not on a city that's here now, that's not going to last anyway, but our focus being there. We just recently moved as a family and I'm reminded every time I move why I don't move very often. Just, I just hate it. I hate it. And why, why do, uh, nobody likes to move. And when the thing that we hate about moving is not moving ourselves physically, but it's moving all the junk. All of the stuff that we thought we can't live without that when we have it now and we got to move it, we're saying, I could have lived without that. I didn't need that. And the thing that's going to be so awesome about our relocation someday is we're leaving it all behind, every bit of it. And it's just us that's going. That's why it's going to be so awesome. And we will be glorified in his presence. Now, 
I need to start here and build this kind of as a foundation because when we get into, again, now he's going to get real practical, really specific here in the next few verses. But it's important that we lay this groundwork again because of one crucial word in verse 15. It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The word I'm talking about is then. Then. It's like, therefore, he's pointing specifically, directly back to what we just talked about. And it's because of this, he says, we offer continually a sacrifice of praise to God. It's interesting, this word praise literally means a thank offering. A thank offering. We are to continually offer thanks to God. An offering of thanks to him. The verb is written in such a way, again, that it's continual. Our praise, the fruit of our lips, is not meant for a half an hour on Sunday mornings. It is to be continual. Psalm 50, verse 23 says, He who offers a, thank, a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Honors me. When we offer our thanks to God, it honors him. It blesses him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's on the banners behind me. It'll be on the screens in a second. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what God's will for you is? Who doesn't? Everybody wants, what, what does God want from me? What is God's will for me? He tells us, in everything, give thanks. In everything. Well, there's another important word that we need to look at, and we can't gloss over too quickly in our text in verse 15. It's the word sacrifice. It's the word sacrifice. We are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. We are continually to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, why is that important? Well, we talked about this last week. A sacrifice costs us something. And we, we see this in, in David, in his life, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24. He wants to give an offering to God. And he's not where he normally can do this. He's not at home. So he goes to the leaders of the area that he is and he says, let me buy some land from you and let me buy the stuff that I need in order to make an offering to God. And the leaders said, man, we, we love you, David. You're awesome. Let, we'll give it to you. We'll give it to you. And David refused. He said, I refuse to offer to God something that cost me nothing. So this thank offering that we are to give needs to cost us something. So how does that work? How... How does being thankful to God cost us? Well, I guess it depends on our perspective. It depends on how things are going. If, if things are going really well for you, if, things are, if you're being blessed everywhere you turn, it costs you your pride. What do I mean by that? Well, we have a tendency in our flesh, man, when things are going great, Man, I just, I, I, I had a great, it's in sales, man, I had a great week. I nailed it. Man, I nailed it. Boom. Marriage, man, things are going really well in our relationship. Man, honey, aren't you so blessed to be married to me? 
man, I, I am doing such a good job being your husband. No, the Bible tells us that every good gift comes down from him. In us dwells no good thing. So if you are being blessed, if, if your business is thriving, if, if your relationships are doing really well, thank God for that. Humble yourself and thank God for that. It costs you your pride. You need to praise God because he alone is worthy for, of that praise for the good that is happening to you. You know, it might also cost us, depending on where we are in, in our walk and where we are in our background, it might cost us a little bit of our comfort zone. What do I mean by that? Well, I grew up in a very denominational background. And the only thing you did with your hands during hymns and singing and praising was hold a hymnal. That's it. But the Bible tells us that we are to lift holy hands in praise. Yeah. Now, this does not mean, please hear me, that the person standing next to you that was singing in worship today that had their hands up higher is holier than you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not at all what I am saying. But if you are concerned about what the people next to you might be thinking, if you were to raise your hands, that's a problem. We are to worship an audience of one. And if you are worried about the audience around you, your focus is wrong. And, and I understand it. Like I said, I get it. I get it. I came from this. It was really uncomfortable at first for me. And if, if you're like me and uncomfortable with raising your hands and singing in worship to God, try this. Try what I did. Try this first. Kind of cool. And you praise God. You know, and, all right. When you get comfortable with that, you can go. You can do this. You know. And again, not, this is, nobody else around. This is between you and God. And then, you know what? And he starts moving, and you start thinking you can't contain it anymore. And you get, man, one hand up. And, and before you know it, God, man, I just can't contain myself praising him. It, before you know it, that's the most comfortable position you'll be in. Next to being on your knees. Praising him praising him. Well, I want to spend a few minutes, though, before we move off of this, by the, the sacrifice of thanks that I think costs the most. Because we've talked about when things are going really well, and we've talked about things when just everyday normal things, but what about if you're having a really bad day? What if you're having a really bad week? A miserable month? Bad life? What, what, I mean, what, what then? Are we supposed to praise God and offer him a thank offering even if I'm having a lousy week? I think especially if you're having a lousy week. It's his will for you in everything. Give thanks. I don't feel like it. It's the last thing in the world I want to do right now. And maybe some of you are in that. I mean, it, it, you probably wouldn't say that out loud, but... When we were just doing worship right now, there might be some of you in here that were like, man, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. And you, you, you played along, you clapped along. On the outside, you did it, but your heart was maybe even irritated by some around you that were worshiping. Bottom line is, if you're there, you are outside of God's will for you. 
And bottom line then, that's a heart issue. That's a heart issue. Turn with me really quick to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if, if you are a student of God's word or studied it for any length of time, you probably know Psalm 51 is the psalm that David penned after he was confronted of his sin with Bathsheba. And it is a psalm of repentance. If you are dealing with sin in your life, you need to repent of that sin. And Psalm 51 walks you through step by step how to repent of your sin, the heart that you need to have. But I'm not drawing us there for that today. I want to draw us here for a couple of things. Because like I said, this is a heart issue. And it says in, well, before I get, I heard John Corson, one of my favorite Bible teachers. He said this, and I love, I love the parameters behind this because it comes into play so much right here. Because honestly, we can't change our heart. And that's where he begins with John Corson in this commentary that he had. We can't change our hearts but we can change our minds. God can change our hearts, but he won't change our minds. So if we want God to change our heart, we have to change our mind. Now, I say that because when we look at this psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, we see in verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You've probably heard that. You've probably read it many, many times. But it was this week when I read it that I understood for the first time what he is saying here in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That word create is the Hebrew word bara, which is used in Genesis chapter 1 when, God when it's talking about God creating the heavens and the earth. What did he create the heavens and the earth out of? Nothing. Nothing. And that's what makes you, the word bara unique, is that it means creating out of nothing, and only God can do that. All the creating that we do, we are starting with something and making something else out of it. But here... The word create, bara, means making something out of nothing. And that's what's so important, and I want to make this, is God, the in me, dwells no good thing. In the heart surgery that you're going to do right now, scrap the whole thing and start new. If you put anything back in that was in my heart of flesh before, start all over, God. And again... The reason I'm making this point is because we are holding on so often to things that are holding us back from truly praising God and giving him thanks because of things in our heart. And we have to make our mind up that, God, you need to start over from scratch. You need to, to take over and do this new work in me. Look back at verse 8, Psalm 51. Make me to hear joy and gladness. God, make me hear joy, even though I don't want to. Again, here today, you might be here and you hear this joy and gladness, but to you, it's not joyful. God, make me hear it. Make me hear it. I am making my mind up right now, God, that this is joyful. Whether I want to be joyful or not, I'm making my mind up, God, that I'm going to give you my heart to do the work that you're going to do in me. Bottom line, 
God sometimes calms the storms. But other times, he lets those storms rage, but he calms our soul if we let him. If we make our mind up that he is a sovereign God, he is in control, and God, whatever you choose to do, I'm okay with. And that's a hard thing to do. And I'm going to praise you in the storm. Awesome song, by the way. Praise you in the storm. I'm going to praise you in the midst of this storm, whether it rages on or whether you stop it. Whatever happens, God, I'm praising you. I'm giving you thanks. David said in Psalm 146, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He's commanding his soul to praise God. Again, making up his mind. And I think, I think that God is most pleased when we do that. When we offer him thanks, even when we don't feel like it. It's a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name because he's worthy. Well, it's not just 15, this, this sacrifice of praise. Verse 16 talks about another sacrifice that we are to do. Verse 15 speaks of the fruit of our lips, the fruit of our worship. Verse 16 speaks of the fruit of our works. And again, a sacrifice. Paul said in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, starting in verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So not only... Are we to offer a sacrifice of our praise, a sacrifice of our thanks? We are to offer a sacrifice of our works. Now, before we move on from this, again, just to make it extremely clear, this is not in order to obtain salvation. This does not add to our salvation. I believe, again, that's specifically why the author stuck that right in the middle to remind us our sin offering has already been paid. Our sin offering has already been offered and received. We're talking about an offering now of thanks. We're talking now of an offering now just to, because of who God is. So how does this look? How does a, a sacrifice, again, when we're going to share, when we're going to do good, if it's a sacrifice, it has to cost us something. It has to cost us. So what does that look like? Well, let's take a look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. A little over a year ago, we studied through the book of Philippians verse by verse. And what a great church. What an amazing body of believers that God did an amazing work in and through. But we see here at the close of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, he speaks of their sharing. And in this, we have some great insight as to how it should look in us. Verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the, manner, or the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. When I left you guys, I continued on the work that God called me to do, and you were the only church 
that supported me. You were the only church that took care of my needs. For even in Thessalonica, verse 16, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit with which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Wow. This gift that you sent, more than once, by the way, you sent it a couple of times to, to, to bless me. God, God saw that. And Paul says, it wasn't the gift, me receiving the gift that blessed Paul. Paul, we know Paul. We, we know he said, I'm content whether I have everything, whether I have nothing. He would have been content personally, physically, whether he got anything or not. But it blessed his spirit knowing that they get it. They understand it. They understand that in, in blessing others, they are blessed. He talks about this account that they have that they're adding into. Most of us in here probably have some type of retirement account that we've been putting stuff into. We've been adding a little bit into. Wouldn't it be great if you could dictate your own return on, of investment on your IRAs? Wouldn't that be awesome? Especially now with how little we're getting back. Well, as a Christian, we all have an individual eternal account. And by the way, you get to dictate what the return on investment in that account is. What do I mean? Well, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Based on how you put into it, it's how you're going to get out of it. Now, what does that mean for you, individually, personally, specifically? I don't have any idea. Each and every one of us, the Bible tells us to, we are called to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not working yours out, and you're not working mine out. That doesn't mean, again, that we're working towards our salvation. We've been given this, and we are to walk it out. We are to follow God as he is leading and guiding and directing. But we need to be seeking him. We need to be praying about this. We need to be going to him and saying, God, what does that look like for me personally? I have seen it happen way too many times for it to be coincidence. I've seen it happen in my own life, and I've seen it happen to others. We get emails after people get the prayer chain emails. If you, if you don't get the prayer chain, you can sign up for it online and get the list of people that have prayer requests, the blue cards that are filled out, that send in over the Internet. Numerous times people will send an email in or contact the office saying, I've been reading the prayer chain and this particular one God spoke to me on. I have something that I would like to use to bless them. I see that they're struggling here or that they need this. I have that and I want to give it to them. A lot that happens. And that's because people aren't just reading the prayer chain to keep up on gossip. They're reading the prayer chain and they're praying over it. And God says, here, I want to use you here. It says when we do that, sacrificially giving to bless one another, verse 16 tells us it pleases God. Now, 
Paul gives us a little insight in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 about something that must, it must come alongside the sacrificial giving. It's got to come from a cheerful heart. It can't come compulsively. It can't come because I feel guilty. He says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So again, heart, God Change my heart. I change my mind right now. I am going to follow the direction of your word and go where you lead me. You change my heart. But we see a little bit more into this, if you'll turn, and we're going to get back to Hebrews in just a second here, but uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to see just a little bit more about this church in Philippi. See, Paul is commending the church and thanking them for what they've done, but he brags on them even more when he's talking to the church in Corinth. He says, 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And I love Paul's heart here. He doesn't want to puff up the Philippians, and he doesn't want to cut down the other churches, but he told the church in Philippi, nobody else gave, only you. So we know that he's talking about the church in Philippi here. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, they gave cheerfully, abundantly, joyfully, and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. It wasn't required of them. They did it on their own. And they didn't just go to the bare minimum. They went above and beyond what they could even afford to do. How do they do that? How, would, how can somebody do that? Well, it gets better. Verse 4, begging us with much urging. Not only did they do it, they begged Paul, please let us do it. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Is that how you look at giving? Is that how you look at helping others, participating in God's work? That's how they looked at it. And they considered it a favor to be able to do this. They considered it a blessing to be able to participate in God's work supporting the saints. Now, I'm saying all of this and you're probably thinking, great, a sermon on tithing. No. As a matter of fact, he's not talking about tithing. I'm not talking to you one bit about tithing. I am talking to you about sharing and doing good with one another. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. That's what happened with the church in Philippi. They weren't tithing to their church in Philippi. They were sending, in addition to their tithes to their church, they were sending extra to Paul. They were sending extra to the church in Corinth above and beyond what they could even afford to do. Back to Philippians 4.19. If you've already gone away from there, don't worry, I'll just read it to you. It says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You give this way. You give sacrificially. You go above and beyond with a joyful heart because you want to bless God's work. God promises he will take care of you. And if we look at this in totality as we draw this verse together, 
What is being said here? Who provided for Paul? Who provided for the church in Corinth? It wasn't the Philippians. God did. Now, we just talked about the fact that it was the Philippian church that sent those gifts. So, I don't get it. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See the connection here? That gift that Paul received was never the Philippians to keep. God, God ordained this way back that that was Paul's. That was to end up with him. The church in Corinth, the gifts they received were always intended for them. God just had the Philippians hold on to it temporarily and then pass it on. Gave them the blessing, you bless them with it. And the same is true with us. We're blessing brokers. God deposits blessings into our account, then tells us to go deposit it into their account. And if we're disobedient in that, you're not holding on to what's yours. You are keeping back what is there. That's why this is so important. To understand that we need to be in prayer about this. God has this plan. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it as we get to the end of the study today. But he has this amazing plan. And he allows us, not requires us, allows us to be a part of it. It's a blessed between services to hear of a family that this last month went through an amazing trial with their little girl. And talk about how they were so blessed by so many families who not only were praying for them, but came alongside them practically, taking care of their other kids when they didn't, these people didn't have the time or the resources to take care of these kids, really, because of their schedules. But they knew that they, this other couple needed to be in the hospital with their little girl, their one-year-old daughter. So they gave above and beyond what they could to bless them. And you know what? In that whole thing, they were all blessed. That's how it works. By the way, one last thing before we go back. Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches. His riches. They never run dry. Like I said, he, he makes some crazy investments at times. And says, all right, I'm going to invest over here knowing that it's going to come back around through here. Oh, man, I, following the, the trail of it all. But he's got the plan. Well, sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of works. Continues now, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them... Do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, this is not me telling you to submit and obey to me. Matter of fact, the word that's used here is leaders. Leaders. It literally means leaders. It doesn't, it's not the word for pastors. It's not the word for elders. It's not the word for bishop. It's not those words. It's the simple word for leaders. Those who have been placed over you in leadership within the church. 
And what, what the author is saying here is that it, this is a vitally important part of church, how we function together as a body of Christ. We need to submit. We need to obey, it says. That means to listen to, to comply with, to trust the leadership in the church. To submit literally means, if you, if you look at the word, it's a different word that, than we've used for submit in some other areas. It means to resist no longer. That means you're, you're resisting, heart. Resist no longer, but to give way to. Again, if you're resisting, that's a heart issue. You can't change your heart, but you can change your mind. And you have to. This isn't a suggestion in verse 17. <laughs> it is a command. But to me, when I look at this, and again, there's a direct tie, because the same word used for leaders in 17 is the word used to lead in verse 7. So look at verse 7. This is crucial. This is key to leadership. Those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Gang, if we ever, as a fellowship, get away from teaching God's word, what does it say, what does it mean, and how do we apply it? If this ever becomes an opinion, if this ever becomes uh, you know, a popularity contest or whatever it is, all rules are off for verse 17. <laughs> it's talking about the word of God and those who lead you in the word of God and teach you. And that's why our focus is, it, when we get together as leaders, we continually talk about the fact that our focus needs to be the word of God. If it gets off of that at all, one degree, we need to get back on track. Now, before we move off of this, I do need to say that it is an absolute joy to be your pastor. Calvary Chapel Surprise is an amazingly joyful place. This is not a message here because there's a huge issue that needs to be dealt with within our body. If you're dealing with that personally as a heart issue, that's between you and God. Get that fixed because it says it's unprofitable for you. But God is doing a great work here. And I do have to say, starting right here, that we are not perfect because you don't have a perfect leader in me. We have a perfect leader we follow. But this isn't a perfect place. It's not far from it. Don't get me wrong. It's a great place. But we can't please everyone. We can't. And I, as, as the pastor, I am called to please one person, actually. And no offense, it's not you. <laughs> I'm called to please our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's as, as leaders and as elders and as pastors, that is our focus continually. And as I said, I speak on behalf of the leaders. I'll just step right out there. It's a joy. It's not a grief to serve here. It's a joy. And if you want to do something, verse 18, pray for us. Pray for us. For we, are, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. We do that. We hold each other accountable continually as leaders, that our consciences are clear before God, that we are seeking him, that we are following him, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Getting a little kind of a personal thing. We don't know the, the, exactly what's going on with what he's talking about there, but pray, pray. And I am so blessed by your prayers. I know many, many, many of you pray for me and my family every day. And I covet your prayers. I, I, I love that. I love that. And we feel that and we know that. So thank you for that. Please don't stop. Continue. <laughs> All right, verse 20. 
Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Gang, there's a whole sermon right here (laughs) in these two verses. But instead of taking 45 minutes, we're going to run through this in about five, so get ready. But this is awesome. This, to me, pulls this all together because we're talking about giving a thank offering, giving praise and worship to to God. But what about him? What is it that is worthy of praise? Well, here in this section, we see seven things about God. First of all, he's a God of peace. He's a God of peace. And if you have come, again, from a religious religion background, a denominational setting, you might look at God as anything but a God of peace. You might look as God as some angry old man up in the sky just ready to zap you if you do something wrong. And many churches still teach that. He's a God of peace. And it's not God the Father, the angry old man, and Jesus, the God of peace, who who has stepped in. No, it was God's plan all along. He loved you so much that he sent his son. He desired peace so much with every man he sent his son. The Bible says that he desires all men to come to repentance. He's a God of peace. But he's also a God of power. Look, it says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. You see, Jesus stepped out of heaven. God himself became a man. He lived a perfect, sinless life amongst us. And then he went to the cross and he suffered and died. He shed his blood once for all on the altar of the cross for our sins. But it would have meant nothing if he stayed dead. But he didn't. Three days later, we see that God is not only a God of peace, he's a God of power. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises us spiritually from the dead and gives us eternal life. This sovereign God, he has no equal. His power is unmatched. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. Nothing, nothing. God of peace, God of power. He's a God of purpose. Look, it says, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. He's a God of purpose. This was a plan that he had from eternity past. It wasn't like the Garden of Eden happened and and Adam and Eve sinned and they said, oh, now what are we going to do? No, this was done from eternity past, this plan. He loved you so much that this plan was put together by the Trinity in eternity past to save you to spend eternity with me. That's the God that we worship. He's a God of provision. Now it starts getting again right down to us today. Not not just eternity, but right now today. Verse 21, he's a God of provision. He equips us for the good works. It's not like God says, all right, I'm going to give you something impossible to do, and you're on your own. No. He gives us something impossible to do, and then he equips us to do it. He's a God of provision, but not, he doesn't stop just there. He says, equip you in every good work to do the thing working in us. He's a God of participation. So he gives us the impossible thing to do. He equips us to do it. And then he comes alongside us, helping us all along the way to make sure it gets done. Wow. 
How do we not thank a God like that? But it gets better. Not only is he a God of, of peace and power, of purpose, provision, participation, he's a God of pleasure. He delights in the fact that he gives us something impossible to do. He equips us to do it. He comes alongside to make sure it gets done. And then when we do it, he gives us the credit. He delights in it. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And all he's asking for in return is just a thank offering. Don't, don't you think that he's worth that? This, this God of peace, this God of power, God of purpose, God of provision, God of participation, God of pleasure. He is a God of preeminence. He deserves our praise. To him be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's worthy. Well, like I said, there's your condensed version of that. But wow, what a, what a, what a thing to go through again and to, and to just look at all of these attributes of our God. Well, verse 22, he pulls the letter to a close here. Verse 22, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation or encouragement, for I have written to you briefly, <laughs> 13 chapters. <laughs> 13 chapters briefly. He must be a pastor. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Some kind of personal things tying together. Again, we don't know exactly who the author is and the, some different things, but just kind of some personal stuff. But verse 25, applicable and something that we all need to just pull away from this whole thing. Grace be with you all. Again, gang, it's all about grace. It's all about grace. And when we look at the totality of the picture, that's why we praise him. Because it's the grace that he's given us. We don't earn it. We can't, we don't deserve it. But he lavishes it on us anyway. And that's the God we serve. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for your incredible word. And Lord, as we have spent these last several months studying this, this amazing letter, Lord, I thank you for how you have guided and directed. I thank you for how you have personally spoken into the lives of those here. Lord, I thank you for your living word and how personally applicable it is. And Lord, a takeaway for me, certainly, as we have drawn this letter to a close, Lord, is I need to change my mind. I need to give you complete control. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. Lord, I pray that each one of our hearts would be turned to you completely. And Lord, that you would do that work in us. I thank you for grace. And Lord, now as we finish our time together, we lift together a thank offering to you because you alone are worthy. In your name we pray, amen. Let's all stand and, and sing a song of praise to him again one more time as we close.